Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. You know, idolatry doesn't really appear in the Gospels. Stephen mentions idolatry in his speech, and then Paul is going to equate the failure of the Jews with idolatry. To go back into Judaism or to go back into a Pharisaical religion is the equivalent of falling back into idolatry. By the time we get to the Gospels, the Jews have no problem with idolatry. But Paul is going to say, oh yeah, but you've got the same problem. They got rid of literal idolatry, but what he's going to accuse them of in Galatians, that is the Judaizers, is the same problem. And so idolatry, I think, is a kind of the idolater scene is a great illustration of the human problem and predicament. First of all, the idolater scene is all visual. In Japan, we literally had the largest Buddha in the world. And this is part of a, tra- you know, a big idol. The bigger if it field of vision, you know, that's good. And literally, you could walk in the Buddha and they had public toilets. It's the only time I've gone to the bathroom in Buddha. The idolatry scene is always visual. The other thing I think that we've misunderstood about idolatry, and this may vary from forms of idolatry. You know, Paul says the idol is nothing. I think many idolaters would agree. That is that the idea in idolatry is the idol is actually representative of something that you cannot immediately grasp. Most idolaters, in fact, do not worship. You know, we talk about a a kind of immediate worship of the idol. You know, we often think of the idol as the transcendent made imminent. I think it's, in fact, the opposite. I think the idol, it is making something God who is available and appears to us throughout Scripture and theophanies in many ways. There's no problem with God being made imminent. Actually, the problem of the idol is it's an impossibility. The object of the idol gives us an object that is an impossible object. This is there in Ezekiel in the phallic symbol. You know, we we often equate a, a kind of pornographic scene with idolatry, but idolatry is not a it's not eroticism. It's a failed eroticism. In other words, this object is unobtainable. The phallic symbol, you know, it's as large as donkeys and horses. You know, you probably don't want to preach on this on a Sunday morning. But the the picture is that you're lusting after this idol, and this then gives rise to human sacrifice. Exponential desire, you're going to give everything to this unobtainable object. The way that I'm describing this, though, just describes the human predicament, that this thing that we are in pursuit of is unobtainable. What is it that we want? Desire wants desire. That is, desire is exponential. It's a Lacanian formula. Because in a Lacanian formula, unfortunately, desire is connected to the life principle. That's all you got is desire. And so once you lose, and in a sense, you know, we could say, well, yeah, desire for God is that that is something that we want to be in pursuit of. The, the word for idol is the same word as image, selim. The image of God that we see in Genesis is the same image. And so literally the image is put upon the idol. The idolater 
stands, and th this may be confusing, but you know, when we think about the image of man, it is reflective of the image of God. That is, that we know what the image of the human image is because of the relationship that we would have with God. It is a reflexive imagery. That is, it is a participatory image. That God is the controlling factor in the image. It's the image of God that is in humans, and that is an active dynamic image. You take that in the idolater scene, and the dynamism, obviously the idol is dead. The idol is nothing. It's inanimate. The only dynamism is in the eyes of the idolater, that literally he's putting himself in the place of, the, of, of God in this sense, that he is in control of the idolater scene. He is the one who is projecting this image. Idolatry, strangely enough, I think we've simplified it and misunderstood it as making imminent that which is transcendent. No, I don't. I, I think that's, in, in fact, a misunderstanding. In Christ, God has come to us. There's no problem with that. There's a problem with the Jews. There's a problem with the Greeks. Everybody has a problem with that. In other words, that's kind of a shocker to people, but it should not have been if we had understood who God is from the beginning. It was never that God was, you know, in, you know, this is the whole point of the enfleshment, the embodiment. You, I think you could just use idolatry as a picture of the failed image, the failed human image, the tendency toward reification, the privileging of sight, and of course the ego, that is in Paul's picture, the object that gets reified. This is the Lacanian view of uh, what we would do with the image. We reify it, we make it spectral, and it's static the object in the mirror or the static image is is unchangeable and, and frustrating. And so the ego is, by definition, frustration in its essence. Uh, I'm, I'm stuck on the reification that pride is as we build the Tower of Babel. The big difference between shame and pride, shame is the major role. Uh, it doesn't mean to displace guilt the role of guilt is still possibly something that's to contend with but shame goes closer to our identity shame has more to do with vulnerability and nakedness comes to mind all your images of it being associated with death in scripture if you're experiencing shame you cannot live this way for long it leads to death it's like exposure to the elements and you just crumble the realization. And so I appreciated that whole Lamech, Cain, and then uh, Tower of Babel bookend of recognizing, what was it, the, the season of shame or the age of shame, shamelessness? Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know if this adds to it, but I, uh, a sense of failure and almost a loss of wholeness, kind of disconnected from something or, or someone. I'm going to throw a curveball into this discussion. The last several years, as a teacher, bullying was an increasing problem, especially now with texting, bullying through texting. One of the recent school shootings, when a teacher saw that note on the boy's desk, he had drawn a picture, this little bubble above his head. He wrote, the, the thoughts won't stop coming. Mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know the details of his, let's say, diagnosis or history, but it seemed like he was 
caught in the grips of some internal vacuum, something that he, he couldn't step out of. I'm just tossing that out. That makes any sense in in the context of shame, you know. Absolutely. Wasn't that the one where the parents fled initially? Yeah. It just happened a few months ago. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to figure, you know, kind of get these straight in my mind, and I feel like guilt. If I'm found guilty or caught or something like that, it may not impact my whole life as much as shame. Uh, something that goes a lot deeper where. I feel like I've hurt somebody or, or something. I've, I've lost a, a connection with somebody. I mean, I, I'm, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to decipher these words, how, how they work. I, I think, Jim, you hit a key thing that actually Christianity Today, I, th- I think the article has shame returned. And of course, what social media does, suddenly you have the weight of social pressure put upon an individual in a kind of unbearable way among kids. And this was, in a sense, this is the way Japan functions. In Japan, I worked in a school where the guys that had, they were actually two very famous educators. They were both teachers at this high school, junior high, and they'd they'd worked with juvenile delinquents. It was actually a Russian system, but it, it also fit Japanese history. Actually, Japanese don't have the sense of original sin, but they had adapted this idea. The kids were all divided into groups of seven on the old village system in Japan, that seven villages, and then there'd be seven headmen. So they divided the kids up into these groups, and I, I can't remember how many, maybe five in a group. You understand we're talking about a huge classroom. Classrooms are very hard to control. The children are always punished or rewarded in groups so that if one child does something wrong, the weight of the group is put upon them. It is a heavy, cruel system. And this is, I think, why Japan has one of the highest suicide rates among junior high students in the world. They're using shame openly, that you're going to publicly shame someone. I think as human beings, especially as a child, that sort of thing, you can't endure it. So it literally is deadly to shame someone in that way. It can be deadly in one of two ways. These kids in the States, you know, that are bullied, they strike out and kill, or there are children that kill themselves. You know, they don't have the resources of an adult to say, well, these people are just idiots because that's all they got. They just have their peer group. They really don't have anything. And so I think that we in this culture that actually shame is in the mass media, it is a factor in people's, suddenly it's kind of back with us. And I think that's precisely what, you know, when we talk about, there's no singular word, there's like 14 words in the Bible, there's no Hebrew word that you can point out and say, well, this is the word, but it's just a description of this whole structure of what a human being is what it means to be human, there is no sense of a kind of absolute individualism. Unless, and this is, I think, the generation of Noah, that when you talk about shamelessness, in this day and age, if you meet someone who, you understand this is a sociopath. They're someone who, they don't have those feelings. You know, they're not controlled by those feelings. So this is the, a, a kind of worse estate than the first. When we talk about what Christ bore, you know, the world, in a sense, had turned against him. This is pride, is the way that we would ward off shame. 
you have to get rid of it. I mean, you have to do something with it. It's an unbearable situation. So that's what we're describing. But in, in, in the recent psychoanalytic literature, there has been a, a reappreciation of shame. People are, are describing it as a lost presence, an uh, a inability of, you know, of showing your face. So I think that is, is very much a true, truer to the biblical picture. You ever heard of internal family systems therapy? It's kind of new, but I've benefited from it. And it's basically uh, asking the different parts of yourself that have either gone into exile over time or have developed to compensate or protect the exile that has come up inside of you and your behavior and your psyche. The point being that there's this exile is usually a child inside of you as that would represent shame. And then it's the protector, the manager or the firefighter that comes out and protects the one who's exiled. So that would be pride. Just a little parallel that I came up with thinking about it. That fits. What's the name of that? Internal family systems. Internal Family Systems Therapy by Dick Schwartz. Oh, that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. And that gets at why violence, because the protector's coming out. Yeah. Well, he found out this was a, a, a model because he kept hearing, he was working with young ladies who had eating disorders and involved themselves even in cutting themselves using the word parts. There's a part of me that wants this, but then there's also a part of me that does this. And so in addressing those different parts, he came up with the idea of dressing a whole family that exists inside a person's psyche in ways that are constructive, addressing and asking, basically asking permission and having the leader of the the true self uh, help sort of lead and manage the parts within the self. Mm. You know, it all takes place in the therapy office, but conceptually it works pretty well too. When I mentioned Freud, I'm, it's not like I'm committed, but it's the same thing. You have the father, mm. the father figure, which is the superego. Mm. Father figure it, it can play. It's usually a punishing picture of the father, but who's getting punished? Well, of course, the child or the ego. In other words, you're playing both roles. Mm. That You are your, the father, you are the son. You are the law. You're the enactor of the law, and you're the one that the law is enacted upon. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I like that description. And of course, the idea of shame is that in some way, violence, you, you're getting rid of the shaming aspect, the one that's shaming you. And it may be you. I mean, that's suicide. That voice in your head, that thing that is plaguing you, you're playing both roles. Or it may be someone else that you're f- focused on someone else. I always tell the same stories, but in Japan, Japanese is so important and speaking the language in a pure way. Boy returned from o- overseas and he had a slight accent and his uncle kept making fun of it, which to us would sound, oh, that's kind of harmless. Well, the kid eventually picked up a baseball bat and beat his uncle to death. It- eventually he couldn't take it anymore. That to strike out, in some sort of violent fashion is a kind of byproduct of shame. And of course, the striking out is the the protective. You have to protect yourself. I I don't mean you have to. I I mean, that's the the feeling that obviously that's the source of evil is that people would be their own law keepers, their own protectors. They would secure themselves. And that self-security is precisely what we call evil. 
because the way I'm going to secure myself is violently. I really did appreciate the concept of pride as a covering for shame uh, and as a reification of anything, really, especially of language. You know, when I was proposing this dissertation at Nottingham, uh, Karen Kilby, who is a British, well, she I think she's actually American, but she was at Nottingham. And I mentioned the pride thing, and she uh, she made the point, well, isn't pride a peculiarly male thing? I don't think she fully understood. Well, the way that I'm describing this, it is just a generic cover. It's not simply the kind of arrogance or that aspect that we often put on pride, but it's just this identity that you can do with any number of, and it may be that maleness gives way to more of the kind of arrogant, uh, I, I don't know, but it, it's not really talking about lack of humility in the way that we often understand humility, but it's describing the necessary clothing that we all just have to put on mm. that can consist of any number of things. You know, maybe it consists of good housewife. That, by the way, Jim, would be a good Japanese. What is a good woman? A oh, good housewife. In the last meeting or two, you mentioned those two goats or yeah. the lamb and the goat. Uh, John the Baptist statement. Here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. I am taking a tack there, Jim. I'm not sure who all agrees with me on this. I'm presuming that we can identify Jesus completely. In other words, the work of Christ completely with the Yahweh goat. But I'm presuming that we cannot identify Christ with the Azazel goat. I'm presuming that the Yahweh goat work or the work of Christ in the pa in you know the Passover, certainly in the way that it's portrayed in John, takes away the sin of the world. You don't have to negotiate it. You don't have to pay a, a penalty. You don't have to pay a ransom price. In other words, there's nothing to be done. And that is a, a very different, but I'm presuming that the nature. Well, let me, can I, can I give him, but could it be that in the two natures of Christ, that Christ is both the Yahweh goat and the Azazel goat, the Azazel goat, however you say it, because he does both. Well, that would be a common way of reading it. That, that would be the ordinary way of reading it. I'm not dogmatic on this. Rene Girard's theory, I think, not all of it, because Rene Girard's more positive, but you could almost fit his whole theory, and I'm agreeing with his theory. I'm not disagreeing with it. But in other words, his whole thing is, well, we the, the function of the scapegoat is exposed. The scapegoating mechanism no longer works. I think that's right. But what we need to go on and say is, yeah, but there's a whole other side to this of the reality of what Christ is doing beyond the exposure of the lie of, you know, this death dealing orientation or the scapegoating mechanism. You know, part of what happens to Christ is he is treated like a scapegoat. You know, they would, you, they would spit on the scapegoat. They spit on Christ. They mock him. It is a scapegoating. But what is that? You know, what, what is taking place there? I don't think that the sinners and their sin bears any weight in the economy of God. Uh, the person of Christ is not negotiating death. That punishing aspect of sin that Christ does indeed take upon himself 
is simply taken away because of who he is. Is it necessary that Jesus suffer due to who he is, or is the suffering a byproduct of simply human sinfulness? I think it's the latter. Yes, Jesus suffers like a scapegoat, but he saves us not because of that scapegoating. He saves us because he defeats it. He overcomes it. He defeats death. He establishes an alternative kingdom. I need to hear that again. And well, the whole thing, but this idea of the blood cleansing life, cleansing the temple and bringing life as something I need to like work through more of. Reading N.T. Wright helped me a lot to sort of understand the, the temple scene, <laughs> the purposefulness. I think there is an alternative reading to that. We often picture that as God wanting blood and death. That I think that's a misunderstanding that in the temple, what the temple is representative of is a microcosmos. Here is the cosmic order. What is being cleansed is sin and death. The goat that's sent into the wilderness is the goat upon which sin is placed. And the blood, in this instance, representative of life. God doesn't want death. He wants life. And so there is an alternative reading of uh, Jewish sacrifice in the Jewish temple that we often don't hear. And the, the point of it is precisely not the pagan sacrificial system in which the gods desire death and blood, but it's the opposite, that you're cleansing the cosmic order of sin and death. I, you may have been thinking Jesus coming into the temple. Mm-hmm. I think that that is connected. It is connected in that Christ is true temple. Mm-hmm. He is true sacrifice. He's the one who truly cleanses from sin and death. And once we get that, and the whole thing about justification for violence and all that, the nonsense that it, that is, you, you don't have to go very deep with that. Obviously, the temple is not a place where any kind of weapon would have been allowed. Uh, Jesus isn't hitting people. And the temple cleansing is symbolic. It's a symbolic fulfillment of prophecy there in Zechariah, that here is the fulfillment. The Lord has come to his temple. That's what's happening in Christ. So that once we get what was really what the temple and the sacrifice were really about, we, we're really going to understand that through understanding who Christ is. But I think there is a reading of the Old Testament that is uh, over and against the usual reading. I, I think we have a very inadequate view of the uh, Jewish temple. Yeah, um, you know, I was wrong. I didn't, it wasn't N.T. Wright's reading about the temple that was most fresh in my mind. It's uh, Rene Girard. Girard just sees Jewish sacrifices as more sacrifices. What is then, what is the Azazel go, and how does it relate to, to Jesus and to, or to, or to, uh, the sinners who find themselves outside, you know, that have not been healed. Right. Because I think that that was part of that ceremony, right? Was that there was a, you know, they, they were being uh, not just like forgiven. Or Again, we have like this habit of thinking about forgiveness in terms of a law court, uh, using that as the controlling metaphor. But I think that God has always been in the business of healing his people, first and foremost, changing their hearts and calling them to, a circumcision not of the flesh but of the heart part of this is in the details of the ceremony and that is that the first thing that happens in leviticus 16 it revolves around the yahweh goat 
And the Yahweh goat is, of course, the goat that's sacrificed, whose blood is taken into the Holy of Holies. And the idea is that this life that God is providing cleanses the temple. And then the offscourings of the temple, the death and the sin, are placed upon the other goat. In other words, the detergent of the blood has done its work, and the second goat is not really doing anything other than symbolically removing these things to the pit, to the abyss, to the Azazel wilderness. But the end of the story, of course, this was the significance I was attaching to John's depiction, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, like the Yahweh goat, does all of the work. You can identify Jesus as the Lamb of God. You can identify Jesus with the Yahweh goat. While you cannot identify Jesus with the Azazel goat, you can identify the work of Christ as accomplishing what the Azazel goat does. It's already accomplished. Here is the Lamb of God that sacrificed and just takes away the sin of the world. We don't have to run it down where he took that sin. You know, they literally, I think the Jews had a kind of uh, image of sin that it was this thing you had to carry out. You know, it was this filth or this dirt that you had to dump. But in Christ, we understand, well, no, it's actually not, it's not anything. It's nothing, ultimately we can see the this was the significance of the piece I did today. The Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies between the two cherubim, and there is the presence of God. The tomb is like the Ark in that the two angels appear, and there's all sorts of similarities then struck between the Ark That's and good. the tomb. That's good. So that Christ occupies the place that was a place of the dead, Hades, Sheol. That that place is, in fact, in a sense, it's not a place anymore. That is a category that is undone. That what has become so far removed from God is now the holy of holies. What does that mean, a category? I mean, you know, that seems like an abstraction. It is an abstraction. I think Sheol the place of the dead, or just the graveyard. You know, what is that thing? Well, uh, nothing. There's no souls hanging out there. The category that the Jews had, I think that we all have, a kind of intermediate state that we imagine is a real thing. We kind of create this abstraction of an in intermediate state is filled in by Christ. I don't think there is actually Hades or Sheol because the Ark of the Covenant that is the tomb, that is the cross, in other words, that's what's been obliterated, is this abstraction that is a controlling abstraction. It is a kind of unreality that served as an ultimate reality. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, that's good. That's brilliant. And some more, you know, you're just doing what origin does. That right there is exactly what that is a spirit, as a mystical reading, you know, what you just described with the Holy of Holies and the cherubim and all that. And I love that, you know, you compared it with the two angels. That's all, that to me 
man, that's the bread and butter. That's the good stuff. That's the, that, to me, I think that's where the truth ultimately resides is in the mystical, the mystery uh, that you, that you're bringing together with these different things. I think it's just such a fun, and that's what I'm saying. That's why I was saying a while back, it's like, Origins are not playing a game. You're not playing around with this. You're, you're, you're coming to it. You're, you're reading these things in a profoundly uh, mystical way. But I think that we've had a bad habit of saying, oh, mystical just me, you know, in a modern sense. It's like, well, there's no way to conflate mysti- the mystical and the true or something like that. But that's just not the way that the, that's not the way that the fathers thought about it. You know, the mystery, that's why we call the sacraments the mysteries. I don't know exactly what's happening with the body and blood of, you know, the bread and wine being, uh, you know, consecrated and, and uh, changed into the, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a mystery. But I know it's happening, or I believe, you know, that it's happening and that it's everything. So we do this a lot, but I, I feel like we've been afraid to do it when it comes to biblical interpretation. And I think that what you're doing there is exciting. It's exciting. It's an alternative reading that is actually getting us somewhere. Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, you you think about the Ark of the Covenant. What marked the seat of the mercy seat was the cherubim. If we are right in seeing the tomb as the Ark, the mercy seat is that place where Jesus' body, you know, was laid. Actually, the same language is there. They put it there. That's what they did with the ark. But now the place of resurrection, you know, the mercy seat was the place in which Moses received his revelations. God's presence was there. God spoke. Well, the mercy seat in the tomb is the place of death, but now God's presence is in the midst of death. He speaks from the grave, quite literally. That's where we encounter God. Not that the grave is anything, Right, but that he's spoken and, and undone that category. And he says something quite significant when he does speak three times to the apostles. He says, peace be unto you. I don't think he just means chill out, you know, and, and have a sense of tranquility. This is a peace that uh, goes beyond. It is that, like you described earlier in the talk, that there is a there is a peace in the midst of all this madness. But there's also the peace that you were just describing that, Man, that's a pretty bad situation to have to go into the tomb, you know, between the two angels, I apparently of judgment or whatever, you know, and to go into death and to not have any hope and to be, the, you know, you're at the judgment seat and the, you know, I guess you hope that it's the mercy seat, you know, but Christ fulfills that and makes it the mercy seat, you know, and speaks from it and speaks what is good. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to continue to speak through his apostles through what we now call the New Testament, through uh, you know what we would say is the Holy Fathers, maybe through this conversation. That the play, that in other words, we ourselves have come from the death. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you were raised with Christ. And this goes back to what we were saying earlier. We have the mind of Christ. That's a pretty tall order, you know, but I think that we're developing, like in the Greek word, we call it the phronima. It's like the mindset. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a way of seeing reality with the mind of Christ. But why didn't John the Baptist say, behold, the Yahweh go of God? I think that there is the theology of John is contained in that statement. You know, first of all, the, the, what has happened that we immediately cannot do, we blend the Yahweh goat and the Azazel goat. That's what Calvin does. Through church history, you're going to see people doing that. But you can't blend 
the Passover lamb with the Azazel goat. Those are two very separate things. And that's the my understanding of the theology of John, that it's a positive theology. John is not depicting Christ having to do what he does because of sin, but in order to give life. Getting rid of sin is a consequence of the love and life of Christ. The primary thing is not about sin-bearing. The primary thing is about giving life and love, and that takes away the sin of the world. That's excellent. That's that's excellent. That's the theology of John. How is that different from the Yahweh goat? It is the 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 same. Yeah, you're right. It is the same thing as the Yahweh goat. But by linking it to the Passover lamb, that is a, a singular thing. The Passover lamb was had yeah, I mean, nothing. The, the, the two, the, I mean, very, very well. I mean, obviously, the two must be related at least in some way, right? The Yahweh goat, the pat, you know, the Passover lamb, which is typifying Christ. Obviously, those two are related intimately, you know, related and interconnected, and yeah, and that's what that's what I'm saying. The positive work of the Yahweh goat can be equated with the Passover lamb. There's the full work of Christ. You don't need to say anything else, but then you can describe a consequence of that, taking away the sin of the world. Which is beautiful, because what you're describing then, yeah, because we would we would normally make sin the primary, you know, the, I think you're right about that. At least the, the way that I receive my, initial, my entry into theology is that really sin is the primary thing. That is the, you know, it's the obstacle, it's it's the reason for Christ coming, but that's why you've laid all the groundwork of saying, you know, and in law, the fathers teach this, that Christ would have become human regardless of if there was a fall or not, because the whole plan from eternity was to join the human na- to nature to the divine nature. And of course, sin is not a requirement for that. that that's, you know, sin doesn't have, it doesn't have anything to do really with that mission of God. You know, it's, it's just a total uh, yeah, evil interruption. Origin says that the only reason why God allows evil to continue, you know, he so that he can bring good out of it so that we can actually conquer evil. So he says it actually really does now provide a real role, uh, you know, not real in, in quotes, but it, it provides a, a function. That is that when we encounter evil uh, or the passions, uh, that it, it's, a re- it's an opportunity to become like Christ, to conquer it, to overcome it to be united with God and to not allow our, our temple to be defiled by the very thing that the Azazel goat, you know, is meant to drive out from the people of Israel. I think it's a really profound thing, a point that you're making, if you, if you really think through it, that, that sin and death and evil really aren't the primary thing that Christian theology is talking about. The primary thing that Christian theology is talking about is our Lord Jesus Christ and his love and his goodness and his his sovereign power over all of his creation and i mean sovereignty in the in the you know in the best sense of willing the good for all of his creation like a good sovereign that the evil and sin and death are almost like a well like you said at the end of the day it's nothing that we've made everything and we've even done it in theology yeah we've made it the chief we've made it the primary task that christ came it's a like you said earlier i think you said it's a it's a byproduct of the life of christ and the victory of christ that sin and death and evil are abolished but the positive part of that is that the human nature is joined to the divine nature and that 
Christ had a body and a soul and a spirit. He was fully human so that we could become fully God. That is the positive thing of what I think John's, that's why I said the other day in class, well, what's the soteriology of John? Well, it must be divinization. So in other words, it's not just Jesus came to die for your sins. Of course, that's true. I mean, you know, St. Paul says that that's the first importance is that Christ died for sins, right? But he then goes on to describe resurrection and the rest of that whole big section. So, you, you know, and so to me, uh, becoming gods, you know, little G gods, divinization, theoses, that is the positive theology of St. John, of which, uh, of course, from the beginning, even in the, even in the narrative, sin, disobedience, rebellion, shame, guilt, alienation, violence, all these things are just a product of us not being God, or maybe being sort of a counterfeit God, or believing a lie to become a God in a different way, which of course is to become a sort of Satan. Yeah, alienation. And so it is, it is simply a picture. We have life, and life displaces death. You know, as a teacher, I'm sort of faced with when the class comes in, I'm sort of faced with two choices. I can think of the class as like, just like empty vessels that I'm supposed to pour information into. So I'm focused on what they don't know, which is self-defeating because you can't focus on what, what doesn't exist. Another approach would be in a relationship, have experiences with those people. Out of that experience, something positive occurs, learning occurs, new insights occur. That's what I'm thinking about, John, like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Peter. Wherever they were, they moved out of that into something different or something new. I'm also thinking of the light shines in the darkness. Christ has this ability to move in people's lives. It takes, meets them, starts with where they are. That's good, yeah. No matter where it is, moves them into a different kind of reality. I like that. He meets people where they're at. They know something, and he starts with what they know and unfolds it from there. Which, by the way, takes us back to the very beginning of the conversation about epistemology. You know, that would be my only critique, or maybe it's not even a critique. That is that they really do know something that's real, that's true, that that all knowledge and is already a participation in the life of God. That all that the logo, the re what we're talking about is reason, logos is already then a participation in the life of Christ. So we can't do an absolute that there's one knowledge over here and then one knowledge over there because all you know, all knowledge is a participation in the logos of Christ. And that's why God meets us where we are, whether we're Jews or Gentiles or whatever, or the gym can meet his students where they are, and then he can lift their truth higher. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I agree with you. And what I'm about to say is not disagreement. And that is, and you've heard me say this before, that the truth, though, can cohere in a lot. That is that we can take the truths that we have and make it part of the construct of a false understanding. So I think it is true that, you know, we all have access to the truth, but we would so misconstrue it and so misplace it that even those truths that we may have sometimes then are put in as part of a larger picture that is completely false. I mean, the devil quotes the scripture to Christ. The devil quotes the word of God to the word of God. That's right. He quotes <laughs> the King James word and the word of God to the word of God. 
and he does it in order to deceive him, to try to deceive him. So he tries to use the truth of the word of God in order to deceive the word of God. Right, right. The truth coheres in a lie. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay. Jim, you inspired us. <laughs> I really appreciate the questions. It, uh, you said it very well um, in this podcast, so you might want to rewind it and just listen to that one part. It brought it home. Say it again. Before well, you get <laughs> oh, no, if I can. That God oh. speaks to us from out of the, the tomb in the place of the dead that had formerly been the abyss. It's precisely there, the place between the living angels of God, that the revelation of Christ appears, that the very category of Hades and Sheol becomes the, the, the place of the Holy of Holies and the center of the world from which God speaks to us, so that Sheol is undone. And you understand that, that you're doing, that you are directly engaging Jesus and the calm. You mean over and against them. They, they, they understand what it is that you're saying. Well, I don't know if they understand what you're saying, but they understand the problem that you're describing. And you are providing the only possible answer to the problem that they correctly identify and articulate. For Zizek, a word would have to come through the nothing. Yeah, the nothing is displaced. Is They got the nothing, and the nothing is absolute. But in Christ, nothing is displaced. But you said that it's filled with Christ. Right, right. That God becomes all in all. Yeah, yeah. That the nothing, whatever nothing is, which obviously by definition is not something, it's nothing. It's either blotted out or abolished or filled with Christ, but there's no other third way. Is that connected right. with the uh, temple and the curtain being torn in two there is the veil in the temple and that is similar to the stone on the tomb the stone is rolled away the temp the curtain is split there is an opening up of the holy of holies and of course we often picture the holy of holies in the wrong way it's not so much the priest going in and meeting god but the priest goes in as god's representative and then emerges as god's representative and so I think the stone being rolled away and the curtain being opened is God coming to his own and making himself fully accessible to the world. There is no splitting of the curtain in John, but there is a rolling away of the stone. With the tearing of the veil, you know, St. Paul's very uh, clear about this, that our understanding, our epistemology, our interpretation of the word of God is veiled uh, apart from Christ. So when the veil is ripped open from top to bottom, there is then an opening into, you know, what is the holy of holies? Well, it's Christ, right? I mean, it's the word of God and himself. And so the for origin that what's get what we have access to, what was once blocked off really is Christ in some That's way, good. right? And both, That's good. you know, and, and, and so in the scriptures, you know, it's like, we can't see him, you know, but now, the veil has been lifted. It's been torn down so that we can peer into the Holy of Holies, that we can look, we can do what Paul just did and do a mystical interpretation. That's true. So don't let's, let's not separate the mystical from the truth or, or to imagine it's some sort of secondary, you know, way to get it. It's like, no, we believe in order to understand that is our epistemology. And so we have a very distinct hermeneutic as Christians and it's a Christian hermeneutic. We peer through 
the open curtain into the Holy of Holies, and we can see Christ sitting in the mercy seat that was once a tomb. That's good. That's good. Hey. <laughs> well, uh, it was a great conversation. Okay. All right. Hey, glad, glad we could do this. Glad Thank you very much. All right. All right. Bye. See you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.